What does it look like to pursue cross-cultural missions with a focus on long-term success? My guest today thinks that's a question the American church needs to ask itself afresh in the face of new mission strategies and techniques that promise easy shortcuts and quick results on the mission field. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Rhodes, but that's not his real name. Matt works as a missionary in North Africa and writes under a pseudonym for his own safety and for the safety of those to whom he ministers. Matt has worked in cross-cultural missions for over a decade and is the author of No Shortcut to Success, a manifesto for modern missions from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Yeah, really glad to. So the title of your new book with Crossway is it's pretty provocative, I would say. Uh, it's called No Shortcut to Success, A Manifesto for Modern Missions. Uh, and I think anyone reading that title could pretty reasonably assume that you see some problems with how missions are often pursued today, that maybe we're trying to take some shortcuts that are indeed uh, problematic in your mind. But before we get into what some of those shortcuts might be, I, I want to focus on that word manifesto in the subtitle. Uh, that would, I think, in in my mind and maybe in many listeners' minds, seem to suggest that the problem, whatever it is, is actually pretty severe. It's pretty, uh, pretty important. Is that the case? Yeah, the problems with modern missions have gotten fairly widespread. I think you, a lot of the larger missions organizations that I'm aware of that are working in, in most of the unreached world now are following fairly similar approaches to missions. And a lot of those approaches um, are taking, or do seem to be taking shortcuts. Mm. So speak a little bit to your own experience uh, on the mission field. Can you give us a little bit of a, a context for uh, what you do, where you're at, and, and how it is that you have that kind of maybe inside view as to what's happening? Sure. I have been on the field for 10 years now. I've been working in the Muslim world. I've been in three countries. And the reason for that being that in the first country I worked in, I and all of the other missionaries were invited to leave by the government shortly after we got there. Is it safe to assume that invitation was was maybe not as pleasant as you're making it sound? It wasn't an entirely pleasant invitation. Hmm. Although, as an American citizen, you're not going to likely be roughed up by mm. by a foreign government but it wasn't a pleasant experience and the believers that that were left behind in that country faced some pretty severe persecution once the once the missions community was gone so i have uh, so, so after that i spent six months in a second country and was able to find the place where i've worked since then and so i've now been here for seven years um, I've learned two dialects of Arabic now, and a tribal language, which is what I'm mostly working in, and it's pushed some of the Arabic out of my brain at this point, mm. although I'm, I've still got a, a, a very workable level. Yeah. And so at this point in ministry, uh, we're, we've begun translating through the Bible, and right now we've got about 2% of it translated, which is actually a, a fairly fairly long chunk of text. Right. We're, we're learning as we're going, so we're, we're getting a lot quicker. And what we have now is sort of a, a basic framework for the gospel to help us to share. Yeah. Uh, do you have a wife and kids? I've got a wife. Yeah, I, uh, we got married two years ago. 
Uh, we don't have any kids yet, but we'd be happy for the Lord to give us some. Yeah. Uh, so would you say that your country, the country that you're currently ministering in, is a closed country? And, and if so, uh, what, what do you mean by that kind of a term? Um, I would say yes and no. It's not closed in that there is ostensibly freedom of religion. Ostensibly, people can change their religion at will. And the government does allow people to work openly as missionaries. The country I'm in, though, is it's divided. There's one region that's essentially 100% Muslim, and there's another region that's largely Christian and animist. And so most of the freedom of religion talk is a sort of compromise uh, between the, the Christians and the Muslims. In practice, for a, a Muslim person in this country to come to faith, um, they will almost certainly endure very substantial persecution. Um, they can be beaten. Uh, the, the four people who came to faith nearest where I am uh, a few years back were initially sentenced to death until the, the local government or the, the, the national government stepped in and didn't allow that to happen. But they were beaten up pretty badly. Mm. Is that reflective of, you know, some of these local governments or areas they're going to um, kind of be more extreme in some of those regards, whereas, you know, the national government has some kind of, you know, international kind of uh, face-saving dynamic where they're trying to make sure that they're abiding by a broader kind of uh, standard? There's certainly some face-saving going on. I think also the national governments tends to be much more driven by political interests than by religious interests. So we at that point had had the same president for a number of decades, and basically they, they don't want problems to arise between Christians mm. and Muslims, or between any two groups that are in the country. Yeah. I'm sure uh, many people listening have kind of already noticed that you're you're not being super explicit and specific with uh, where you're at and exactly who you're ministering to and among, and, and actually uh, you are using a pseudonym. Uh, Matt Rhodes is not your real name. Uh, so why, why is it that you're doing that? Why do you feel the need to kind of keep a little bit of anonymity there? Primarily for the, the sake of local believers. If people do come to put their faith in Christ, unfortunately, they're at a lot more risk than I am. We have a, a very powerful government and a government that probably rightfully is very pushy about its citizens' rights. But uh, for local people, if they were to come to Christ, they would face really substantial persecution potentially. And so my, t my entire team operates this way, mostly because we don't want people being outed. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so before we kind of jump into then some of the concerns that you have, some of the critiques that you have about the way modern missions is often pursued, uh, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to what your expectations were going into missions work, full-time missions work. As you said, you're, you've now been at this for more than a decade, and so I think it's probably safe to say that you... You understand now what the reality is like, uh, especially in a difficult context like what you're in. Um, so what were your expectations, and were they realistic before you actually got onto the field? You know, I had a dose of realism. My missions pastor, before I was sent out, had spent about 20 years in Papua New Guinea planting a church there with his wife and with some other missionaries. And so I think they did hammer into me, this is going to be long-term work. This is going to be difficult work. 
I think there was always a part of me that felt, you know, that once I had been here for a little bit, maybe just through relationships somehow, um, or through close friendships that I made with people, that God would work really quickly and open things up really quickly. And that certainly can happen. God's capable of doing that, but that hasn't mostly been the story of what's happened here. Hmm. I've also found for myself when thinking about, uh, especially when thinking about like years, it's one thing to sort of acknowledge intellectually beforehand. This is, I'm in this for the long haul and it's, it's going to be, perhaps it's going to take a decade for uh, me to really make progress in a certain way or for us to start seeing fruit. But that's very different than actually being there for three years or four years or five years and, and knowing that you're still only a small way of the way in, you know. Have you felt that a little bit where like you maybe knew it ahead of time, but the experience of it is very different? Sure. I think especially when I started moving it from Arabic into learning a tribal language and realized that the, the, the tribal language that we were learning was considerably harder than Arabic. Uh, and it was going to take a number of years to get mm. any kind of real fluency in it. I think there was sort of a sense of, is this ever going to end? Yeah. How, how proficient uh, are you in Arabic? Uh, my Arabic is, is highly conversational. I, I would say I, I really had mastery of it probably a few years ago, but I don't use it as often. And so what, language is a little bit like a sieve. It kind of drips out of your mind slowly, and you have to keep pouring <laughs> it in. Yeah. And so at the start of, of my next term, one of my goals is to start slowly recovering it. But because my team's not primarily ministering in Arabic, it's it's less of a priority. Yeah, right. Well, let's jump into some of the, the specific shortcuts that you see being taken around the world. Um, what, what would you say is maybe the most common one in your experience? So there's a number of... Of, of newer methods, probably the most commonly used method is, is a method called DMM, which stands for Disciple Making Movements. Um, there's a, a widely circulated missions book called Church Planting Movements. It's very similar. It was released a couple of years before DMM was introduced, and it was based on a lot of the same work and ideas. And so how would you describe DMM? What's kind of the core idea behind that? Well, I think with all of these newer movements, and there are, there are others as well, <clears throat> I think first of all it's important to say there are some really good things in them. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to come against things, I'm more trying to provide an idea of a correction. What do we want to be doing? So that being said, I think where almost all of these new methods go, go awry from the beginning is that there's just an overwhelming focus on speed and numbers. So if you read, for example, the book Church Planting Movements, which was sort of the beginning of a lot of these newer philosophies, it opens by talking about this incredible uh, just explosion of people turning to Christ in northern India. And there have been a couple of books written about DMM. They, they open in the same way. And they, they talk about the work of a missionary in northern India who they allege brought, uh, well, it's now claimed that he brought over 10 million people to Christ, and that number is supposed to still be growing. Per personally? Not personally, but through his ministry. Uh, mm. In fact, one of the interesting things about this story is that he wasn't living in India when the movement was supposed to have happened. Oh, interesting. Huh. So where do you think the emphasis on, on numbers and speed comes from? Uh, why is that such a priority? 
I think partly it's a very American thing. And Americans are disproportionately represented in the mission field. We want to succeed, and we want to succeed in really massive ways. And frankly, we, we see it at home, too. You know, when somebody like Rick Warren writes a book about how to develop your church and to make it grow, you'll see hundreds and thousands of pastors that are buying it because they see how quickly he was able to, to build his church into just an enormous church. And maybe it comes a little, too, from, uh, from our theology of revival. I think we have this idea that there are certain times where the Spirit just comes in really unusual ways, and we have a sense that there might be keys to unlock that. Hmm. So what are some of the specific uh, shortcuts then that you see people taking in their pursuit of uh, the speed and the, the numbers that, that for whatever reason they kind of feel are, are required or are to be expected? Sure, I'll name three of them. I think the, the first and probably the biggest one is that there's a real lack of preparation. And so a lot of missionaries get to the field without really a very mature understanding of Scripture. Um, I think that that lack of preparation only gets worse when they then begin to work and continue working without really mastering the language that they're working in. And partly because the American education system doesn't focus a lot on learning other languages, it's really easy for people to underestimate just how well you need to know another language to master it, especially if it's not a language that's much like English. So once you get outside of European languages, it can take an enormous amount of effort to learn a language well enough that you can really participate in spiritual conversations where things are moving quickly and people are emotional and they're speaking very colloquially. I think a, a second place where it takes place is that a lot of these newer methods, because they're so focused on rapid growth, one of the things that they don't want is in-depth teaching. It's not that they're against it, but that just takes too much time. And so there's, there's a real push for new churches to be planting new churches, which plant new churches. And a lot of, a lot of recent missions literature has basically stated that every six months or every nine months, churches should be duplicating themselves. So I'd love to go back to that issue of preparation and training. Uh, you mentioned that uh, there's maybe sometimes a deficient biblical or theological understanding on the part of the missionaries uh, as they go. Um, how common is that, and, and what does that look like in practice? Give us a sense for the things that people maybe don't know that you think they, they should know. Sure. I think in practice, one of the, well, where, where I am in the Muslim world, one of the things that people really stumble over is the idea of the Trinity. And, of course, the Trinity is a mystery. I, I remember when I was little asking my dad how he understood the Trinity, and he looked at me and he said, with fear. But nevertheless, there, <laughs> there are things that we can know and that we need to know in order to help people's questions. And I think at a deeper level, when I was on my way to the field, I was encouraged don't get bogged down in people's questions. Just keep telling stories about Jesus. And what that ends up communicating to young missionaries is that people's questions don't really matter. They're just smoke screens. You don't need to, you don't need to be able to help them through those things. 
but a lot of times these questions, they really seize people deeply in their consciences and hearts, and people just can't get to a place of trust in Christ before their questions are answered. So do you feel like for you personally, um, having experienced maybe an emphasis on telling stories, on uh, encouraging people to read the Bible for themselves and groups, did all of that lead to you feeling maybe underprepared in terms of the nuances of theology and of understanding the Bible uh, when you hit the mission field? Well, I was encouraged on my way to the field not to have any formal theological education. And I understand that seminary can be prohibitively expensive for some people, but there are, there are other types of theological education available. Uh, I did end up doing some seminary training before I left. And I think it was helpful, I think partly because people who are, who are approaching Christianity from a Muslim point of view just have an entirely different set of questions and different set of issues that grip them. And I often see younger missionaries trying to share Christ about the same way that they would share with their, with their postmodern friends back home. And it just doesn't, it doesn't generate a response. Yeah, it seems so obvious, I think at least to me, and my sense is that many people here would kind of get that, that you, you probably need to know, uh, have a pretty solid grasp of the faith yourself, of God's Word yourself, before you can teach it to someone else. And, and not only that, that then you would probably want to know, it would be very helpful to understand the culture and the language of the people that you're going to. So I guess, um, you know, respond to that, that, you know, again, someone like me coming into this, it feels so fairly obvious and yet that's, that's not the emphasis, that's not what people on the field are actually saying. You know, how could they miss that, I guess? Right. I think there are a few things going on. I think part of it is that people get worn out. Uh, it takes people initially come and they really do want to master the language, but then after two or three years of hard studying day and night, you're still struggling to keep to keep pace with your friends when they're just talking and hanging out, and it, it gets very demoralizing. I think a second thing is that people start to, to, to give up on thinking that questions can be answered, um, especially in the Muslim world. So, you know, any, anywhere you go on the mission field, there will be some questions that, or there will be some things that are really going to upset people. and in the Muslim world, one of the things that's very taboo to do is to, is to compare, for example, uh, the, the Quran with the New Testament. It's, it's very hard to speak about the Quran in, in negative or questioning terms without people getting upset, and especially it's hard to speak about Muhammad in that way. And so I think people end up, they sort of retreat from, from addressing the things that that people already believe in or are bringing to the table because they just don't know how to do it. And they assume that maybe the spirit just isn't working in that person. Yeah, one of the things that you know in your book is that sometimes, or maybe even oftentimes, uh, we think, and this is probably true for those of us back home as well, uh, but we think that uh, missions is fundamentally different than secular vocations. Uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, and, and why is that an issue here? Yeah, I think people have an idea that somehow missionaries are on the front line of God's work in a way that Christians back in the West aren't. And so the Spirit is going to be doing things on the mission field 
maybe that, that you wouldn't expect him to do back home. So back at home, if, if you had maybe just planted a church and these people are six months old in their faith, you wouldn't be encouraging them to plant in their church and to, to take control of it and to start shepherding people on their own. Um, actually, we'd probably be really scared to have somebody who was only six months old in their faith, maybe you know, <laughs> shepherding our youth, becoming a youth pastor, because right. we know what can go wrong. But I think one of the things that, that people feel happens when you get to the field is there's, there's just something different. The Spirit's moving there in a way that he's not back at home. Is there any truth to that notion, or do you feel like that is pretty much wholly misguided when it comes to how we think about God's work uh, on the mission field? I don't know if it's wholly misguided. I'd say it's primarily misguided. You know, historically, even, even in the Bible, God worked it in different ways, in different places, in different times. And so I think absolutely, you know, God is a, is a God who, who you can't put in a box. Yeah, and yeah, that connects to something I, I feel like I've observed, uh, both related to missions and, and maybe related to all kinds of other things, whether it's uh, how you go about preaching or teaching in the context of a church or just sharing the gospel with a friend. It's that response that, you know, there are, people can point to a specific example, maybe an anecdote, uh, where God did work in a powerful and big way, uh, and, and then they can kind of say, see, that proves that, you know, that method or that approach that maybe someone's criticizing as not being as biblical or maybe not being very wise— They'll say that that proves that it is fine to use and maybe even preferable to use. Um, so how do you think about that kind of argumentation? Because, again, I'm sure that many people uh, can point to examples uh, from the mission field of some of these strategies or methods or maybe a, a de-emphasis on learning the language and still see, look, this guy, though, had so much success. God used him in such powerful ways. Um, what would your response be to that? I think absolutely that happens, and we don't want to to fall into thinking that just because something worked once that it's the right way, because God works through good and through evil, and He works through wisdom and through foolishness. So, you know, God can work through Jonah, who's a disobedient prophet. He is able to speak through the mouth of a donkey. And I'm, I'm not trying to compare people to donkeys here. What I'm trying to say is that <laughs> the fact that something happened once, that doesn't mean this is, this is a way we should be choosing to operate. So I, a, lot of, a lot of modern missions literature is, is suggesting that people primarily come to Christ now through miracles and through visions. And, and we have to be ready to preach, as Paul says, in season and out of season. So what if your miracle doesn't happen? What are you going to do? Because you still carry a message. So some of this conversation about preparation and and even this the, the way that we think missions work is different than other kinds of work that we as Christians do, it connects to this idea of, of whether or not we should view missionaries as professionals. Uh, should they approach their work as professionals, which kind of implies then a level of intentionality beforehand and training beforehand and the development of some skills that they would need on the field, uh, just like a doctor would need or a a teacher might need in another context. Uh, What do you think about that conversation? Uh, Are missionaries or should missionaries be professionals? There are two things that I want to say in favor of professionalism. The first is that Throughout the Bible, we see God working in human things. 
even in Jesus' ministry, Jesus took, we're told that he took on human form. And it's through his human touch and through his human words and his human relationships that people find healing and that people are brought to faith. And so we can't despise these human parts of ministry. Actually, to, to do that, it leads us somewhere close to an early Christian heresy called Gnosticism. So we as missionaries, mm. too, we, we need to have the ability to explain things really clearly. So in your book, you share uh, a story of your struggle to learn Arabic and, uh, and even the pressure that you started to feel uh, to stop focusing on the language learning. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what happened there and, and how that all played out. Yeah, I, when I went to the field, because my missions pastor had a lot of field experience, he really camped on the benefit of language learning. And something that I would love to say for people even who, who don't buy what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say here is that whatever your, whatever your approach is, a little, a little bit of extra fluency probably can't hurt. Right? Even, if, even if you do think that most of what happens, mostly the Spirit's just going to work through dreams, or mostly the Spirit's just going to work through miracles, it still can't hurt you to have really strong language. Um, I was near the end of my first year on the field, and so my Arabic wasn't strong. Arabic, because it's so different from English, will usually take somewhere between two and five years for people to really master. And my team leader's overseer, told me that he thought it was wrong for me to be spending so much time learning Arabic because there were English speakers in the city that we were living in and I could be sharing the gospel with them. And ultimately, I told him that I couldn't do that because my sending church would object. And he, he had the respect to, to bow to the wishes of my sending church, so I was allowed to continue. But I've also seen missionaries in the same place who were asked to leave teams or who were pushed off the field. So how do you uh, strike that right balance, though? Because I could just taking kind of the the devil's advocate side here, not to paint, not to paint anyone as a devil here in this conversation. But you know, I could see someone saying, you know, there is a, a danger, a temptation for someone to spend so much time just in their study, you know, learning from their books, uh, that they're not actually out there engaging with real people, and they kind of lose sight of, you know, the ultimate. The ultimate call of a missionary, the ultimate vision, is not to learn a language. It's not to learn about a culture. It's to actually make disciples and see people come to faith. So how, how do you figure out where that balance is? Well, it's not an easy balance to figure out. I think nobody going to the field is going to acquire the kind of fluency that native speakers have until they've been there probably for over seven to ten years. And so you can definitely enter into ministry before that point. And in fact, an apostle, this was a term that existed in Greek even before Jesus was born, an apostle was something, the word is apostolos, and this was somebody that would be comparable to an ambassador. And so when Jesus is sending them out, he's basically telling them, on behalf of my kingdom, I want you to go out and share my message. Maybe as a final couple of questions, Matt, I wonder if you could uh, reflect on the context that you're ministering in primarily, the Muslim world. Um, what is it right now that gets you, uh, makes you feel a little bit discouraged or is, is maybe really difficult uh, in the broad Muslim uh, missions endeavor? And then what are some things that are, are really exciting right now and encouraging? I think probably the, the two things that discourage me, one would be 
how short-term people's approach is. They face enormous pressure coming to Christ, and there's enormous fear. Specifically with the tribes I work with, if, if you were to become a Christian, it's likely that your family would be taken away from you. So that's a, a huge burden mm. for people to bear, and it's not an easy thing for them even to begin looking at another way of thinking about things. So I, I think that just the short-termness of people's time on the field is discouraging. And frankly, it, it is discouraging to me often just to see the challenges that people face as they begin looking at the claims of Christ. And can I really imagine that this thing is true, even though everybody I've known and respected says that it's not? What encourages me? I think I have been so encouraged by the faith of people who I work with. You know, even even when people are ministering in ways where I would say that's maybe not the wisest or most way to minister, I've just run into some incredible saints on the field. And it also encourages me to see that, that God is at work. And despite all the challenges, you see people who do come to Christ and who do have just a beautiful and vibrant faith and they hold on to it with everything they've got. And it's, it's, just, it's a reminder that, that the God that we serve, he's a real God and he's living and he's active. Hmm. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking some time today uh, to speak to us from the field uh, and, and to help us understand a little bit better the state of uh, modern missions right now and ways that we can be we can all be praying and uh, supporting uh, you all in your important work. Yeah, so glad to be a part of this, and thank you as well for, for making the time to talk to me. That was Matt Rhodes on Cross-Cultural Missions. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, No Shortcut to Success, a Manifesto for Modern Missions. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org slash plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.